Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Horror Vanguard. Welcome to the second episode of this year's spooky season. Uh, today, we're covering an, an auteur of horror cinema that I do not think we have done yet on the show. I am Ashley Darrow, joined, as always, by John, a.k.a. The Liquid Guy. How's it going, John? Oh, I, I'm, I'm very good. I am I'm very excited. I'm very excited to be here. Um, it's well overdue, and it's kind of fun that you know, almost 300 episodes in, we still are, are kind of like crossing big names off the bucket list, as it were. And especially like one one John Roland, who we've mentioned on the show, Jean, I know it's Jean, but I'm going to American my way through these French pronunciations today. Bear with me. Like we, how often? John Roland, Gene Roland. So Gene Roland, Gene Roland, Gene Roland. Uh, so Jean Roland, we we mentioned him on the show like at, at the most conservative once every two months one of us will mention the works of Jean Roland and like it's just fun to say Jean Roland but like I don't think we've done a single one of his movies yet and so this is this has been long overdue um you know we are we're just we're, you know what we're just gonna keep keep rolling 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 what we're gonna keep rolling that's what we're gonna do we're gonna, we're, Sorry, sorry, I'm I'm mashing up the French fantastique with um, new metal cinema in my head, uh, and uh, I don't hate it actually. Maybe maybe that should be the new thing. Well, y'all know I'd be loving this shit right here. G E A N Roland is right here. <laughs> well, well, people, people, people in the house, put your scythes in the air. Because if you don't care, this- then we don't care if a bunch of lesbian vampires consume a random thief. Yeah, uh, men, men only want one thing, and it's disgusting. And it's to be trapped in a French chateau with a bunch of hot bisexuals armed with sides. Listen, 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 John, 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 Jean Roland cinema uh, walked so Lady Dramescu from Resident Evil could run. <laughs> You needed, you needed, uh, like, what, God, now, how long, how long has Jean Roland's cinematic history been going on? Like, 50, 60 years? You needed 50, 60 years of subtle, subtle yearning to, to be and become and be devoured by a lesbian vampire in order to have people posting Lady Dramascu step on me memes. <laughs> I mean, if ba- basically, this entire film is a please step on me hot bisexual vampire mommy like that's there's a lot of that in this movie Mm -hmm. oh oh and and we're um, gonna get into that too we will get into uh uh do 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 movies have to be sexual discourse oh yes but but before we do before we do before we get into any and all of that i think it's very important that i ask uh you to explain to, to 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 me to all of the other um resident evil fans listening uh, what is jean roland's fascination before i even start this pricey everyone please get out your ash darrow pricey bingo cards because this will be the easiest <laughs> round you've ever had let's let's go and, and today to make it even easier the free square is the ccru okay okay just, just <laughs> i'm feeling good stamp, stamp that I'm feeling one good I'm gonna I'm gonna call bingo as soon as I can. Okay? <laughs> yeah, just shout bingo when you get it. Let me know if I can even make it three paragraphs for you do. And then when you go to sleep, the waves get much larger and diffuse. We all have fantasies that, by their very nature, must remain fantastic. For to realize them in the material world would be to invite the total disruption of the very firmament of our perceptions of reality. Then again, maybe we should court an anarchistic approach to the fantastique. All unjust firmaments must fall. In Fascination, our rogue protagonist Mark is met by a fantasy played out by countless teenage boys, edgy D&D players, and sitcom dads. The isolated mansion overflowing with lusty babes. However, Mark quickly becomes overwhelmed by the reality of any fantasy scenario. 
Fantasy has a haze that rounds off the edges of events and renders them less foreign and hostile than reality would have any such event. Event with a capital E there, please mark your bingo cards. Mark is quickly caught up between the realities of his own assumptive, patrocentric arrogance, his criminal past, and the will of vampires beyond his knowing. At the most minimal, Mark struggles with Alain Badiou's concept of minimal communism. Badiou, in his book Para In Praise of Love, describes love as an act of minimal communism. That, is not, that love is not an overcoming or a negation of difference, but the profound act of seeing oneself in that very difference. Mark cannot overcome this hurdle. His attitudes towards life, love, and women obscure his ability to see his intrusion into the fantastic world. He is a three-dimensional being who briefly, fatally, flickers into the world of hyperobjects. It's easy to write off Mark as a patriarchal rake getting his comeuppance, but in his fate, I see years of failed left organizing, movements, and struggles. The harsh edges of reality tear into the fabric of our efforts. The vision of a better society might be clear as day, but the path we need to walk there is so much more overgrown with uncertainties. Mark fails because he cannot rise to the occasion and find stable ground in a world of total difference. Mark is consumed by this greater, more complex world because he cannot let go of his ego, an ego he was forced to carry and learned through long years to love like it was something of his own making. There is no exiting from this castle of vampires, only a crumbling facade offering a moment's rest at a perilous cost. Whether you see yourself as the longing arms of lesbian vampires, her hungry teeth, or the terror in the eyes of her victims, the only way out of the vampire castle is through. Join us as we Bingo. discuss fascination. <laughs> yeah, yeah, only one, only one direct citation there, but uh, eagle-eared listeners who are fans of this show will be able to get everything from Mark Fisher to Zizek out of that one. My only disappointment is that you didn't mention either the Situationist International or Psychogeography. It was so... Okay, okay. So I saw, I saw this TikTok reel... Um, that a friend sent me a few days ago and it was it was some comedian and and like the the text was like every podcast is like and and she was like the psychogeography of our alienation oh my god i saw that and i <laughs> i saw that and i thought of us as and, well. and, and, I'm, and i'm like oh my god the first half of that is like li i've literally said word for word the first half of that bit on the show and i'm so called out that that's why psychogeography yeah, it, didn't make it into that one <laughs> It is that that TikTok was absolutely an HV call out post. And, and I mean, hey, like I'm not I'm not going to argue here. It's true. The ending, I, I wouldn't have ended my points like that. I would have kept with the weird theory jargon and not gotten not gotten a little Roginian. But like, you know what? It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> that that you know what? That's why that's why we rise above. That's you know that's why that's why this podcast has continued for so long. I am glad we got the Alain Badiou out of the way. Not, not out of the way, but like got the first mention cracked almost immediately because there's really no way to go through a roll-on without talking about Badiou. Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, in, but I actually... In, in praise of I love, think, open parentheses, lesbian vampire love, close parentheses. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, is, isn't that... Isn't that like isn't that what fascination is is about? It's about the interstitial space that exists between lust and love. Oh yeah, yeah. That that is that is a massive part of the context of this movie. Um, this VLV but, but, vampires loving vampires. And you know what? I am an ally. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. I I feel like we should do a little bit of let us let us obey the imperative of the great Frederick Jameson. Um. Let us. As the political unconscious opens with, let us always historicize. Um, so uh, we are pretty well known on the show for our kind of suspicion of overly schematic genre taxonomies. Um, you could absolutely consider this a gothic romance. You could consider this a, a horror movie. You could quite arguably consider this like erotica, maybe even like a softcore movie if you really wanted to to take a kind of like quite staunch view on what what um pushes something to be within a certain taxonomy but generally Jean-Rolin is uh, considered you know one of the premier uh cinematic artists of uh, uh Les Fantastiques of the French fantastic film 
And maybe uh, what we can do first is kind of flesh out what 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 is the fantastique and how does it mesh with kind of the uh, German Shudder Tale um, or the English Gothic novel or the development of horror as a as a film form. So this is this is really interesting, right? Because we we often on the show and especially as film critics uh, talk about the French fantastique as a filmic genre. With its, with its earliest tendrils going back to Melies, but really starting to define itself in the late 60s through the 70s, with, with Roland being quite, quite likely the most prolific and famous and accomplished and generally kick-ass French fantastique, French fantastique filmmaker. But uh, you, you, you and I hail from a darker art. We had to learn how to read before we learned how to watch movies. Um. And the French fantastique is a literary tradition that dates back about a thousand years, give or take. It is a very like long historied uh, literary tradition. So I think that that is a good grounding point for the French fantastique, right? This isn't just we're not just talking about a like uh, phase of cinema here. We're talking about like an enduring French artistic expression. Yeah. I I think it's important to have that historical context. And obviously, this goes goes all the way back to, as you pointed out, medieval um, tales of romance, mm-hmm. um, of mon- monster narratives, um, which are not new uh, in any kind of sense of the imagination. Yeah. Um, it, it, it does it does flag I, up that this like wildly predates like what we would what you and I would consider as the formal Gothic tradition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could probably take this back to to um the 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 song of roland yep. from 1100 for example yeah, this, the song of jean um, roland where they where they forsaged his existence a thousand years before his birth <laughs> um but i think a big marker of it and this goes all the way back to something like um medieval uh miracle plays mm-hmm. is the intrusion of the supernatural and the interstate so um Maybe the best theorist of uh, the fantastique is uh, uh, Svetan Torov, mm-hmm. the, the yeah. Russian uh, formalist, who says that kind of the fa- the fantastic is is this kind of interstitial, kind of moment of epistemological hesitancy, wherein you can't necessarily say whether or not something is quote unquote real or true in a straightforward realist sense of the word. Right. So what you have is you have the kind of intrusion of the religious or the supernatural into a quote-unquote mimetically realist setting, right? Again, super common in medieval literature or in medieval uh, miracle plays because you can frame the supernatural through the miraculous and through the religious, that's fine. Um, How do you see this kind of intersecting with the broader historical tradition of the Gothic? Yeah, I, th- I think it is really important to relate this to the Gothic context because a lot of things that we kind of just assume to be essential elements of English Gothic literature are, are stuff that like The Devil in Love was doing four years before the release of The Castle of Otranto, which like, yes, I know that's like the joke in Gothic studies is you have to mention The Castle of Otranto once, but like it's widely considered to be the first thing that really coagulates the English Gothic tradition in a single text. No, but like I, I would say that like um, exactly what you were just outlining about the like essential nature of the fantastique is a big difference that it has from the English Gothic tradition, because like yeah, broadly speaking, in, in the fantastique, there is this intrusion of the the supernatural into the natural world. Right, the para enters the normal, and all of our characters reject it unless they're also themselves paranormal, and because of the mm-hmm. fear and terror experienced the reader tends to also reject the paranormal or the viewer, right? You know, you're watching these films and you're supposed to be, you know, like a a cooperative viewer would be afraid of these vampires or uncomfortable at at these lesbian sex scenes. Couldn't be me. But like, you know, the... the, the Skill skill issue. issue, Yeah, skill issue. Get good, (laughs) viewer. Get good. Um, But like, that's kind of like... The, the the central tenet of that, and then I would contrast that with what largely happens in the English Gothic tradition, is in an attempt to, uh, especially as as the Gothic tradition evolves and we get things like Turn of the Screw, 
and Frankenstein and Dracula, like the thing, the real like super successful hallmarks. Nobody's read the Castle of Toronto unless you have a Gothic studies degree. Like the the supernatural becomes just an extension of the natural and the scientific and the empirical. Right. There are ways to study the vampire, whereas in Jean Roland's films, like there are ways to be afraid of the vampire or seduced by the vampire. But the to know the vampire is to change yourself. Right. Like it is mm-hmm. it is so much more complicated and so much more ephemeral in the fantastic. What are, what are some of your thoughts? I'd like to hear your opinion on this one. Yeah, I mean, I think you can absolutely see it as a distinct tradition within uh, French cultural production. Um, but I also think it's important to point out the ways in which it um, kind of feeds off the transcontinental nature of horror storytelling. So, uh, I mean, it absolutely borrows the explained supernatural from, you know, which is pioneered by someone like Anne Radcliffe in England. It, uh, you know, there are echoes of the tradition of folklore and like religious myth making that you might see in something like um Goethe's uh the Il König the the Il King um but i think one of the big <coughs> one of the big influences and one of the big uh, kind of um interesting kind of cross pollinations i think is the relationship between the french fantastique and um edgar allan poe ooh okay go on so Poe is not necessarily hugely successful in the States at the time, right? But is absolutely kind of a rock star in Europe, in France in particular. Um, and there is, is it? I think it's Gustave Doré who does a lot of illustrations for Poe's stories. And I think they do a great deal to sort of define a certain vision of the Fantastique in the... 19th century which is then built on in the 20th as the fantastic moves out of literature into cinema you know you have the reception of poe you have the reception of hoffman from germany um you have like even even sort of like greats of french literature like alexander dumas uh writes one of the first werewolf yep. stories uh what's it called the leader of mm-hmm. the leader of wolves i think it's called so like uh yes it is absolutely this this specific french tradition but there are kind of commonalities with things like the Gothic novel as it yes. develops in English. Um, but, and there are these these moments where it kind of picks up on things both in Europe and globally from how um, kind of Gothic and horror, horror fiction develops. I, I think that's, that's a really important point here because especially in academia, we have this bad tendency to to taxonomize things and thereby isolate them into a silo. And we start talking about the Gothic tradition as if it's this totally freestanding, like fictive hyper object that doesn't intercede with anything else. But even, even within the tradition of the Gothic, right? Like we wouldn't have any Gothic literature if it wasn't for a specific period of British colonialism contacting the East and European colonialism more broadly. Right, that that brought in tons of new attitudes and ideas, and especially architectural appreciations that that feed our essential understandings of the Gothic. Like the cathedral doesn't exist without contacts with Middle Eastern buildings. You know, like like the, these are these are essential overlaps that we're seeing here. And then even intra-Europe, like you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, like Germanic fiction and like a lot of the early fantastique was uh, Germanic and European stories being translated into French. Yeah, and there is um there is a big tradition actually, especially in Anglophone scholarship, of downplaying the influence of, um, yep. German mm-hmm. uh, literature in the development of the horror of horror and the Gothic, and this is mostly, in a way, a holdover from something like Coleridge. So Coleridge writes the biographic uh, biographia liter- literaria, um, in like the eighteen teens about the development of literature and kind of says that the German kind of um, shudder tale, the, the, sh- the um, is, is a kind of a minor tradition, but in fact, actually if Coleridge hadn't been there translating like Goethe's poetry and Schiller's um, uh, what is it? Tales of a ghost seer, I believe it's called then uh, so much of the Gothic in English would not sort of resemble what it resembles at the moment. Oh, this is, this is so 
completely true and I, I critical to focus on. Of course, the other big thing, if we are going to talk about Jean Rollin, if we're going to talk about the Fantastique, um, we have to talk about... Um, I mean, Fascination is a horny movie. <laughs> uh, we 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 have got to we've got to talk about um, like er- the role of oh 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 something just came to me something something just came to my mind. Kyle Kern, Labor Kyle, hear hear my words through space and time. Jean Roland is Herschel Gordon Lewis, but French. Feel feel this in your soul, uh, Kyle. Yes, <laughs> I speak to you. <laughs> He is, uh, yes, he, yes. Absolutely. Send Jean Roland to yes. Florida for a few years, and you will just create Herschel Gordon Lewis. Which, uh, to to, clar- to clarify this this uh, interesting point that I'm raising here, Her- Herschel Gordon Lewis was a uh, horror. I mean, uh, you, hopefully you know who Herschel Gordon Lewis is, but maybe you're tuning in recently, and there's no need to assume that you do. Um, Herschel Gordon Lewis is the master of gore, right? He made he made these low budget you know slightly pornographic gore films you know so some call him the first gorno auteur um but by and by throughout his career like horror movies are harder to sell than porn so herschel gordon lewis made a lot of porn Mm -hmm. along the way you know mostly mostly softcore nudie films uh uh, owing to the era that he was making pornography in uh but we find the same with jean roland Roland's French fantastique cinema went through periods of not being able to make any money. And you know what always makes money? Porno. So he switched careers yep. many yeah, times. Yep. And indeed, uh, Fascination is even a good example of this. The producers of Fascination wanted it to be a strict softcore pornography. They wanted this thing to be, from start to finish, yeah, yeah. a softcore porn that Roland would just make like his other softcore pornographic films. Roland fought against them and just made his own movie anyway and wound up being one of his most critically successful films so uh hats off to you herschel from france yeah i mean it's it's important to kind of point out where fascination fits within roland's filmography so he had started out as as a kind of film director and had been relatively unsuccessful he'd had periods of success this is kind of like late uh genre um and it's probably one of his most accessible movies. And in some ways, one of his most kind of traditional movies as well. Um, he had gone through periods where, because films had not done well and he needed to pay the bills, he'd done, uh, you know, he had he had done quite a lot of porno movies, you know, a lot of girly flicks, a lot of like softcore stuff. Um, and like, like horror that kind of cinema has one always been very successful and two has gone through these periods of being kind of like mm-hmm. critically well regarded which i think necessarily tries to kind of raise standards and two i mean what is it we always say about horror movies horror wants to do mm-hmm. things to your body um there is the venn diagram of erotica and and porn with horror movies is often a lot of people would find uncomfortably close. Oh, oh, one one hundred percent. And this is this is the horror vanguard cinema triangle of doing things to your body. It's pornography, horror, and comedy, right? Like, and, uh, yes, and this is absolutely. kind of you know we we've talked about this uh, in the context of The Exorcist and and so many other films along the way. But I think I think you're completely correct too. And like pornographic content that is depicting extreme fetishes or is something that is very alien to the person who's viewing it can appear to be horrific right Uh, a a comedy that is of extremely bad taste can appear to be horrific a horror film like jean roland's spin the wheel of his vampire lesbian movies they're all bordering on softcore pornography even when producers aren't forcing him to do that <laughs> My, uh, Jean Rollin like filmmaker of refined tastes. <laughs> whoops, whoops among <laughs> us. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. So, so not to not not to derail our erotic conversation train, but I would like to talk about the kind of cinematography of Rollin for a second, because there's a, there's a specific element of yes, it that I yeah, think yeah. is under discursed and often critically reviewed in a way that I find to be a bit lackluster. 
So Roland is kind of famous for these uh-huh. static shots, right? R- Roland movies have very little camera movement, right? My, my, my guy is not doing dolly zooms when the shark attacks, right? He, he, he just locks that camera down and walks away. Um, but like I, I've seen a lot of newer film critics approach that with some kind of disappointment as if that is a failure of Roland's creative creativity behind the camera, right? Or the, fa- the failure of the people that he chose to work with, you know, but I kind of disagree because all like there, there's, there's so many wonderful locked down, just static shots in this movie and they're all to great effect. They're all beautiful. They convey so much. They make the camera movement that we see when the camera is moving so much more interesting and impactful. And I think it's just it's just a class of sensibilities, right? We're used to like Avengers movies where the, where the camera is on like an imbalanced gimbal and just spinning eternally for no discernible reason. Not to mention shaky cam where, where the camera just literally never stops moving. A lot of the new Hollywood guys like to shoot handheld. Like yeah. American cinema is very much defined by this movement of the camera. And Roland is just doing something different, but that doesn't degrade the quality of the art just because he's using a very more minimalist toolkit. Yeah, so there's this, um, there's a kind of spectrum, right, that you could you could construct between like Darren Lynn Bowsman whip pans on the one hand, um, with and Tarkovsky's static shots on the other. Well, I mean, like nostalgia has like a, a nine and a half yep. minute mm-hmm. wanna, like, <laughs> which is which is just ridiculous. But I think it's very important to think about what does a static camera do? And I think this ties into like bigger philosophical debates around cinema, right? Is cinema about the presentation of truth? Really, that's the big question. And I think the static camera angle is an attempt, or the static camera shot rather, is an attempt to kind of like recreate something that is closer to like portraiture. Mm. and painting i like this i like this so like by by having a kind of non-moving camera what you force the viewer to do is linger over detail right um and you also have like the elon it it feel shots feel longer they do even if you're not actually making the shot longer just because you're staying in one place you kind of slow down the perception of time. Um, and so what you force the, the viewer to do is focus on all of the details within the frame, right? So it really, it becomes, yeah, it becomes almost almost like you're looking at a painting and you're looking at the slow construction of a painting. And again, I completely agree. It isn't that it's done because he didn't know how to, like have cool camera shots or how to move the camera in an interesting way that's just not true and it's like undercut by this film itself right there are there are moments where there are some very cool camera shots there's some really great camera movement um but jean Roland wants you to pay attention to what is in the frame and not what the camera itself is doing so right the slow static locked off shot is like an attempt to invisibilize the cinematic Mm, um, interesting eye, as it were right so the, it, what did Zygovertov say you know I am an eye that's the description of a camera a mechanical eye I'm doing everything that your eye cannot do and I think having that locked off shot is about reminding you what your own eyes can do I think that's really powerful and I think later when we get into the the discourse zone we start talking about gaze in relation to this mm. film, like these these discourses on the formal use of the eye that is the camera will become so much more important. Well, uh, should we talk about this as an adaptation then? Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, this this is going to be really interesting. I th- I think this is going to be really interesting. Maybe maybe no one else will. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm okay, kidding. Okay. I know. I know the listeners of this show. I know what's going on here. We know what you want. <laughs> Go on, drop it on us. Um, so, uh, Fascination is actually an adaptation of a novel. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, so I have not read the original novel, right? But I do think this is uh, this becomes then an important conversation on the idea of adaptation, right? Because we are, I think, at this point in the intersection of capitalism and cinema, we're so used to 
adaptations meaning cash-ins, right? Mm -hmm. And someone's going to adapt something to the screen. That means that something became successful in another media type. And now people are quick to rush it on to Netflix in order to keep the money train a rolling. Like, I mean, like, what's a... Oh, yes. Uh, the, the example that's popping to my mind right now is, like, Magic the Gathering becoming the most successful board game in the world, and then their, their constant failed attempts to turn that into a movie or a TV show. And, like, because that is just a strict cash-in, right? Like, like that's not... They're, they're not going to hand that off to some auteur who can make a, a really good story. That's going to be driven by the marketing department of Hasbro. Yeah, so how do you how do you see fascination kind of fitting in with that? I think fascination is one of like the the interesting examples of like an earnest adaptation, you know, something something that exists parallel to the thing that it was adapted from. Like Jurassic Park is also another good example of this, right? Jurassic Park being um, an adaptation of a a iconic novel, right? A best selling novel, Um, and then and then you make the movie because you've got a best selling novel. But it turns out they're both great in their own respects. They both mm-hmm. stand up independently. One is not heavily dependent upon the other. I'm only assuming that a lot of people don't know that novel exists for Jurassic Park. <laughs> um, and, and for me, like that's that's kind of what makes the difference is we can kind of see that like the I don't want I don't even know if I even want to say but the majority, but a lot of times when we adapt things to the screen, it's it's not being driven by an artistic or creative impulse, or rather that artistic and creative impulse is being drowned out by the demands of capital, right? This thing is a product first and a movie second. Yeah, what do you lose when you like do the adaptation? That's really the question, right? And it's rarely a question of like what can you contribute to the unfolding kind of perception of what the text is. And it's interesting there are probably people who have come across Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton's novel through the film. But there are probably people who've come across both through that very famous joke in The Simpsons. <laughs> where, he's talk- where Skinner is talking about his his novel idea of Billy mm-hmm. and the Clonosaurus. <laughs> oh my god. I would watch that. I would watch Billy and the Clonosaurus. I've actually seen movies that are pretty much Billy and the Clonosaurus now that I think about it. I mean, obviously, so, of course you We're, we're looking at you, Carnosaur. Um, yeah, any, any other kind of formal points you want to raise about, um, Jean Roulin, about this film? Um, yeah, so there's, um, a butcher shop scene that we see in the beginning, and I think that's also good in the context of adaptation, um, because it, it feels very connected to, uh, The Blood of the Beasts, another great French film that was just a bunch of parallel shots of black and white of kind of wealthy, well-to-do people shopping in an open-air Parisian market, and then uh, several blocks away, it was just a grisly spectacle of the most broken and wounded uh, butcher shop workers working at a early industrial meat processing facility. And so mm-hmm. you just you just see people grinding themselves into the very meat and, and the animals they're slaughtering. And it's really vicious. And in this movie, we have a, a similar contrast. And, and this maybe can bridge us into the discourse zone, but we kind of have these high socialites stepping in briefly into this like room caked ceiling to floor and the blood and viscera of animals. And then they're, they're, they're doing it to, because it's, it's the new medical trend that the wealthy have access to. You drink, you drink some beef blood restores your vital essences. Oh yeah. Maybe that's a commentary on vampires and society. Dot, dot, dot. Um, it sounds like we should we should um, shift into the discourse zone immediately. And listeners, if you like commentary on vampires in society, you can you can join the Horror Vanguard Patreon at patreon.com slash horror vanguard, where you'll get access to our little spooky Discord channel, where we talk about vampires quite frequently, probably, um, and our Patreon, where you'll get access to uh, bonus episodes, early access, a bunch of fun stuff. No, no beef blood though. We're not. We're not in the business of giving out beef blood here in Horror Vanguard. <laughs> that would be a very strange. I know. Business. I know. I know. Um, Everybody, my my usual weird promises were like, "I'll buy you a crypt if we reach five hundred thousand subscribers." I bet you. Bet you were thinking I would offer everyone a vial of beef blood if we hit a million. But nope. Nope. We're not. We're not doing that one. 
<laughs> Today's a cornucopia of the unexpected. Um, should we should we dive into some discourse then? Let's let's do it. Let's do it, and let's start let's start by talking about these vampires. I there's a there's a great line that Mark has where he talks about um like the games of the bourgeoisie. You know, he gets there's a you know gets angry with with these women. It's like ah, you all come together to play these these what is it these these games of the bourgeois, mm-hmm. and I'm like, what a what a great way of introducing, uh, this kind of like class dynamic into the film, and also talking about the ways in which ritual is no longer something that's generally a communal aspect of culture as it would have been historically with Le Fantastique right with with those medieval miracle plays mm-hmm. for example instead it's become something that only those who are rich enough to afford to be able to spend the time um are able to do right what, what do you what do you think of this movie as an example of a kind of like class analysis I find it to be incredibly interesting because we have like like the the vampire as a figure in the gothic and in broader traditions like the fantastique um, tends to straddle this really unique space between being a very obvious figure of a cultural bourgeoisie, right? There, va- vampires are often depicted as if not being literal members of royalty, of being you know capitalists of some manner, right? Dracula very famously is selling his ancestral castle so that he can buy a manor in downtown London. You know, like, dude's not hurting for coin, that's for sure. But what we also see in Dracula is that, you know, the vampire is, no matter what else you do to it, is always subaltern somehow, right? Like, the the, the vampire is part of a marginalized gender group, a marginalized sexuality, a marginalized ethnic or racial group. Right, like the the vampire is kind of a metaphor is strangely like striated between these things, and I think we see that really well here in fascination. Yeah, I I I think that's actually really true, especially when you think about the kind of inciting incident of this film, which is a crime, and it, and in fact a a crime committed against criminals. Um, uh, what do we what do we think about Mark? Uh, extremely horny thief. So, if you have been wanting to watch I Spit on Your Grave, but it's just a little too intense, which, hey, it is, I recommend watching Fascination, because it's basically I Spit on Your Grave with a couple changes in who we're focalizing at different parts of the movie, um, and way, way, way less sexual violence. But not none still, so it still fits in the theme. There's another take. There's another the unexpected cornucopia overfloweth, and and I and I say that largely because of like we're, we're having a very uh, Carol Clover men, women, and chainsaws Christmas with Mark, uh, because we have we have this kind of like Mark is a thief, right? He's part of a criminal underclass. He's part of this band of thieves, right? They're roaming the French countryside, robbing these these well-to-do women. Right, these these like you know possible baronesses of their little chests full of gold coins, a la some high school play of Robin Hood. Um, but what we also get is, uh, and this is the Carol Clover invocation here, is that if even though he's part of this kind of economic underclass, he is a member of a gendered overclass. So the first introduction to Mark that we get is him assaulting a woman, and he continues that pattern through yeah. the rest of the movie until he's turned into a juice box for vampires. <laughs> Get your sippy straws, class. Yeah, there. So there are some complexities here, I think, which is to do with the kind of sociology and class dynamics of crime, um, because there are there. There's a distinction. There's a distinction, I think, right between this idea of like you commit a crime in order to uh, not starve to death or to feed your family, um, and that you are hoarding a satchel full of gold coins because you want to escape to London, right? <laughs> that feels like, that feels like if we were going to do a modern retelling, he would have done like a Bitcoin <laughs> fraud. <laughs> like that's, that's the level of crime I feel like we're on. If you know, you know what I mean? There's a kind of, this is very white collar financial crime that Mark has done. All, all my vamps gone. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and so in a way, it's there's this collision between someone who has come into a, a huge amount of new money, as it were, and he literally turns up at a at at a you know an 18th century chateau. Right, there is literally a collide between a new and old form of capitalism, and I believe this is set in 1905, right? I do believe so. Yes. So we're we're on the cusp of the you know great desolation of Europe that was the first 50 years of the 20th century. We're in the hangover of the 19th century industrialization and its effects on the French Republic. So there's all of these kind of like latent um, class dynamics which get played out inexplicitly sexual terms between the uh, uh, menage a trois that, that unfolds before the uh, marchioness and her guests arrive. So how do we, how do we go apart? How do we go about kind of unpacking the bourgeoisie of these vampires, right? Carmilla, Dracula, the vampires here in fascination, all of them are, I mean, like some, some again, like some of them are literal monarchs, but like the the worst these vampires are doing are the kind of like servant girls of a low ranking monarch, member of yeah, the monarchy, I mean, rather. It, it, in a way, watching this made me just think of like um, what Jameson says about Dracula, which is that Dracula is kind of like a throwback now. There's mm-hmm. something almost nostalgic about it, right? Mark is the one with the gun. What's the biggest weapon that? the women can lay their hands on is a scythe mm-hmm. and it's like in the in the semiotics of the various weapons that they have there is a good example of their own kind of grounded sense of historicity you have the gun which is a technological instrument it's um predominantly an urban instrument it's about col- uh, co- colonialism it's about um the army versus the scythe which is a which is not a weapon the scythe is a tool Mm-hmm. Um, as as is the case with many farm implements that can do some serious physical damage, those are predominantly tools and come from a different kind of a different mode of production, as it were. They come from if the gun is industrial, then the tool the the tool of the scythe is agrarian. Right? Oh yeah. So yes, you can talk about this in class dynamics, but you also have I think have to sense the historical discontinuities that exist. So. Yeah, uh, the vampire is always upper class, but the vampire is often just a kind of throwback and almost kind of like nostalgic. There's almost something sort of endearing about them. Oh, I, I, I completely, completely agree with that. And I think we can... There's a, there's a certain sense of safety in a lot of vampiric fiction, right? There, there's a certain sense of comfort in like... What problems does the vampire kind of definitionally not face based on the, based on the formulation of its existence? You'll never go hungry. You'll never get sick ever again. You'll never have to work, right? You you are you are no longer bound to employment. Yes, you do have some interesting housing concerns as as a member of the dead on dead, but uh, those those certainly aren't the same concerns as being evicted for not making your rent because you got fired by the fishmonger for not gutting fast enough. Right. So there, there is a kind of like, I, I would pose that as not, I wouldn't go as far as to say an alternate reading of the vampire, but there is something of a class fantasy happening in the space of the vampiric, especially when you overlay that on the other marginalized identities inside the vampiric, right? Like, especially in Roland's movies, like all of his vampires are lesbians. Like every third scene is like a, a vampire lesbian orgy. And so like, you know, here's here's a very safe fantasy of like, oh well, you know, like you're you're part of a sexualized underclass, a gender underclass, and now what if there was a manor house in the middle of nowhere and even a man with a gun didn't pose a threat to you anymore because your like cloud of lesbian vampire bats could just drink him up like a little sippy cup. <laughs> I mean, there's a fine tradition. There's a fine tradition of lesbian and bisexual vampirism, right? Um and a lot of it obviously ties into the long-standing kind of anxieties of heteropatriarchal society around um, uh, female sociality and and women's bodies. But like, obviously, the big the big forerunner to something like fascination is uh, Fanu's Carmilla. Yes, in what the eighteen eighteen sixties. I do believe so. I do believe so. Predates Dracula. So, so yes. So. Yeah. So 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 how do you how do you kind of like 
how do you think we should best sort of approach the um the eroticism the the sexuality the queer sex specifically uh, that's on display here so I, I believe that uh, now we should unveil a new uh, regular regular horror vanguard uh, segment of the show, the lesbian vampire zone 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 zone. We will we'll, we'll get to Le- Lesbos Vampiros. Will be like the it's it's like the crown jewel. It'll be the one we get to last. Uh, but I think like Carmilla is a really good place to like start this because like that is kind of the formula that we're still dealing with, right? You know, like we we have. You know, like, God, there's, like, so much to unpack because it's vampires and my hot vampire. My hot Dracula takes always get me in trouble. But, like, there's so much to unpack with this, right? Like, it, it's it's very tempting to look at vampires through a class lens that automatically makes them villainous, right? It's very tempting to look at Dracula through a specific subset of lenses and 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 see him only as this kind of, like, terrible monster right and like like i think like the the dracula stuff will allow us to like have a sideways conversation about carmilla and fascination mm-hmm. but like a couple a couple things worthy of noting here in in dracula town uh all dracula's trying to do is find a place to live and and uh he happened to fall in love uh with a with a dopey guy named harker uh, who unfortunately is already married, so that that sucks for him, isn't it? Um, but we can like instead look at Dracula through the lens of being, you know, a member of like Dracula is very queer coded in in that film, especially when we're talking about like issues of like consuming blood and swapping blood, especially as time has moved on and right through the AIDS crisis, how our understanding of Dracula specifically and other vampires more broadly has shifted and changed from the moment the text was written. You know, we can we can challenge the kind of the conventional reading of Dracula is that Mina Harker is like a proto-feminist figure, right? And and she uses, you know, her her business knowledge to defeat Dracula by taking good notes and organizing. But like, you know, we can we can have an alternate reading of Mina Harker, and that's, you know, like she's using these patriarchal tools to help continue the efforts of the British Empire. Right, like she's she's just a good citizen of the empire, not some feminist hero. She's there to exterminate the subaltern and secure London's economic holdings. And I think there's there's always a great deal of so- social anxiety around the female vampire. I mean, oh, deeply. Like, uh, obviously, the big the big exemplar is Lucy Westenra in, Drac- in Dracula. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting, so Katie Katie Stone has a really good paper about Dracula as a utopian figure, um, and she points out that actually all of the children that Lucy is kind of beloved by are, are never hurt by her. Like she doesn't hurt them; they always and they always freely go looking for her. Um, mm-hmm. And it's so 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 Lucy as the vampire is a kind of like both shatters the the norms of the nuclear family like abolishes the family as it were and actually you know communalizes care and the same is true i think of in camilla it's a relationship that starts out as a kind of socially acceptable uh friendship or bond or love Mm -hmm. and then immediately becomes something that is like destabilizing to institutions um right it it is not a family in fascination there is it is a kind of bisexual upper class polycule. Um mm-hmm. so there is this there is this sense of like actually yeah uh, the the female vampire is is the is the literal embodiment of something that's deeply appealing, especially in the in the uh heteropatriarchal framing of narrative cinema as as primarily delivered for male visual pleasure, as Laura Mulvey has spoken about. Um but also is kind of deeply repulsive, is deeply threatening. There is this vacillation between those two states. And it's sort of why Mark, you know, I sort of imagine a sort of CinemaSins-style critique is like, Mark (laughs) Mark doesn't immediately leave the house. And it's like, no, of course not. Because male sexual desire is really not that sophisticated. (laughs) And and like, so, you know, Jean Roland is known for his minimalist dialogue, right? 
not a lot of spoken lines in his very beautiful like i think your your analogy to the painting was was very apt here um even when we consider the kind of soundscapes of these movies right um so very few lines which makes the lines that are spoken all the more important mark mark literally comments that like you know like he's he's got the 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 two uh women who work the manor while the lady of the house is gone and he's he's just like oh i've got a gun and i've got you two helpless babes trapped here oh no like he he literally acknowledges the fact that like he is in a good position when it comes to his career as a criminal running from his his gang of thieves yeah you know so like like we've even addressed this from the start that like from this patriarchal position that mark has he is not concerned about about being in this house. Yeah, exactly. It's like a is it's literally a fantasy. It's literally the fantasy, right? And this is mm-hmm. this is the whole point. The fantasy is um and this is this is the important generic categorization of the fantastique, right? It's the fantastique is the intrusion of the supernatural fantasy, right? Um into the quote-unquote real world and there are these very real economic concerns but they all get kind of drowned out in this in all in this kind of like hedonic um miasma you know this idea of like wandering into a world that you suddenly maybe don't even want to leave and don't really remember why you would leave (laughs) Mm mm-hmm because what is it? What is it that that's the big kind of moment of conversation right towards the end? It's not about money. It's about love, right? Yeah. That's what get. That's what gets him killed. It's not. It's not. It's not any of these base material real world concerns. It's about well, you 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 fell in love, or at least you thought you did. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and, very, that, and that's very very quickly. Oh, on, I think it's important to point out if we're going to uh, link any of this uh to kind of queer sexualities we have to talk about blood drinking the the opening scene in the abattoir then takes on kind of new resonance um the exchange of blood has always been a euphemism for sex always mm-hmm. always this kind of like cellular intimacy um that's always been part of horror and the vampiric tradition particularly um and thus anemia um in this sort of like fin de siècle typology is about the loss of blood, right? What is it? If you are mm-hmm. anemic, you don't have enough blood in you. What you need is you need somebody to give you their blood. And if we see this as a barely veiled metaphor, anemia, yeah. anemia is about needing something that you need someone else to put inside you. Um, <laughs> and again, whomst among us has not had moments of feeling like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, that that the the anemia analysis here, I think is I think is brilliant and also very funny. <laughs> I mean, that's the, the, that's that's so spot on too. Because like, what is what what is one of the ur conflicts of the vampire? Right, the 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 vampire is is free and in if not control, acknowledgement of you know the, the the kind of boundless potential of their carnal desires. Right or even their romantic desires more broadly. Right, not all, va- all so not all vampires are driven by sex. Some are driven by love as well as sex, and like like that that is one of the things that causes the great backlash against them. You know, vampires are always doing some queer coded sexual activity, and then you have like these chaste people who categorically do not and cannot fuck who are out to exterminate them. I sort of feel like the discourse of like, oh, are sex scenes ever necessary in cinema? Not really. Uh, we just wouldn't cope with a, a genre land film, or <laughs> because because the libidinal economy is is the thing that matters, right? Everything, mm-hmm. everything, like what is? I'm sort of I'm super interested in trying to unpick this title of like fascination. Fascination is about a semiotic suspension, right? Where you you stop before the object and you are kind of held there by something by this kind of libidinal force and it's about that interstitial jouissance of like not arriving at resolution and also not turning away in incomprehension but the moment of suspension of where um of where you the subject encounters the object and there is this 
not even a, a movement between the two, but like just a pause in motion. Um, and so it's like the sex in this, uh, the way everything is framed, the kind of like slightly dreamlike haze to the slow camera movement. None of this is quote unquote necessary from that same instrumentalist discourse of trying to strip out the libidinal economy of cinema. But it's like all of it is necessary if you understand that what the film is about is primarily that moment of pausing before the object of desire. And I, I, I use object in a kind of like psychoanalytic sense, right? So the other mm-hmm. the other person can be the object of your desire. Um and so yeah, the, the the sex and the sexuality in it are inextricable from the form of the film that we were talking about. Oh, one 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 thousand infinite percents here, and I think so. Much like our discourse of adaptation is like like the thing, right? The movie that's that's not just an adaptation; that's literally a reboot. That's a franchise reboot of a film from the fifties, right? Like so, even even these hallmarks of horror cinema, these movies that are recognized as being universally great, some of them are just reboots, you know. And I, and I think our our critique of adaptation and reboot is is kind of a aestheticized commentary on a capital process, right? You know, instead of talking about okay, well, why are some reboots really terrible and bad? Why are some adaptations really terrible and bad? Okay, well, we can tie this back to capitalism. You know, we could tie this back to non-unionized computer graphics workshops. We can tie this back to a lot of things, right? And I think we're having similar discourses when we talk about sex in cinema, right? Because, like, that impulse of, like, a lot of sex scenes in movies are terrible and don't have anything to offer outside of some titillation for an assumed male, like, cis-hetero male audience, right? Like, a lot of movies are just, like, you know, if you're, 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 you're putting your rating board allotted amount of titties on screen because you'll know that'll get some more guys in the seats, and you're presuming a male audience when you're making a movie, right? So we have we have that kind of formulation going, but then the critique just becomes purely about the aesthetic. Then it becomes all sex scenes are bad. Yeah, but and, then, and of course, but, like oh, in, this, in this film, like all of these women are like, yeah, he's he's very beautiful, but he's 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 a fucking idiot. He doesn't know what <laughs> he, he does know. He's about to get murdered, right? Uh, and all of the women are far more interested in one another. Um, I yes, mean, as they should be, and like, I I am okay. So for the record, I'm I'm not going to try and claim Jean Roland as some like uh, pioneering feminist filmmaker. Like, yes, huge amounts of his of his films are saturated with this idea of the male gaze that like sexual pleasure exists solely for an implied male viewer. But like, there's this interesting. I think this is something that doesn't get talked about enough, which is like in in this kind of heterosexual male gaze, there's this weird ambiguity of like finding the whole thing, specifically um, female sexuality, really, really kind of hot and attractive. And at the same time, deeply terrifying, like a deep, almost like to the point of it will be the thing that annihilates you if you get too close and too invested. And I think that ambiguity actually complicates understanding this is kind of a straightforward like softcore movie oh yes and, and i think to highlight this point i would like to talk about the first time we see tits on screen <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and and so so uh this this will uh bear with me dear listener because this will take us to a broader more important point um the first time we see uh let us say exposed breasts on screen um is when mark uh, accosts a woman, right? Like he he assaults a woman, right? You know, during during his crimes, and like he, you know, like she undoes her top, and and he just starts laughing at her until she runs away, and then he tries to shoot her, right? And it's it's filmed very flatly, very horrifically, very just kind of matter of fact, right? There there's not the Roland charm, there's not the embrace of the fantastique there. That's and that like arguably that's not even an erotic scene in quotes right that doesn't fit into the bodice buster framework that we usually deal with. Um, but the next sex scene we get is between two. But I just want to flag up here that like this is all Roland movies are vampire movies, but these vampires aren't technically air quotes vampires, right? They're not. Or I should say they are vampires, but they're not Draculas. So if you go into this looking for a Dracula, you might not get what you're looking for, but they are vampiric, rather. 
Um, so anyway, our, our two, our two vampire babes alone at this manor house, uh, have, have a lesbian sex scene and it's filmed through this very fantastic, very soft camera, right? It emphasizes like their sex scene emphasizes embrace. It emphasizes warmth. It emphasizes romance and contact, right? It's not the kind of like male typical male gay sex scene that's very much just about like ogling tits and ass for the entire duration of the sex scene and you get like the bombastic screaming orgasm and stuff like that the things that are typical of of a sex scene that's being depicted for the pleasure of a male audience and so we have these kind of contrasted sex scenes happening throughout Roland's film which in and of itself becomes a great discourse on the importance and power of sex scenes right like if you're watching all the sex scenes in this movie and you're like Oh, how terrible. They're all the same. They're all depicting the exact same activities for the exact same presumed viewer. You might want to reinvestigate how you yourself are looking at the sex scenes in this movie. (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. The corrective here isn't just to just to shout, oh, no, all movies should have wild sex scenes or something. It's no, our sex scenes need to be thoughtful. They need to be intentional. They need to, like do what Roland is doing with sex scenes. Right. Don't just do like the 80s American action movie where for like s- s- some reason, like T- T-Bone McStab has to have like a protracted sex scene.